You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Go ahead and tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, Divorce, or Discussing Divorce Part 2. Now before we get into... uh, This morning's sermon, I just want to really encourage everyone here to participate in our prayer service tomorrow, um, tomorrow evening, as as we mentioned just now, that there are a lot of things happening in the world that we as believers need to be praying for. Um, And so if you've ever, if you've never joined us for our prayer service, we encourage you to do so. We've got some information for you and that you can uh, get on how you can join us. It's all going to be online. Uh, And but please do join us as we pray for what's happening in the world um, in our communities and in, in, in the global church community as well. So this morning we come to the final sermon of our Taboo series and part two of our discussion on divorce. As mentioned last week, my hope is to revisit this series at a later date and, uh, and to, dis- to discuss other taboo topics that weren't discussed in this, uh, this, in this series. But until then, please feel free to uh, send me your suggestions or talk to any of us elders uh, if you want to discuss those topics right away. Uh, now, if you recall from our previous sermon, we established why God hates divorce, right? And the fact that basically that God hates divorce, right? Period. Full stop. Jesus himself explains that this as he quotes Genesis in our passage from verse 6 to 8. He directly quotes Genesis chapter 2. And from that, we establish God's design for marriage. And that design has always been a covenantal relationship between one man and one woman for life till death do you part. And so divorce simply allows for people to commit sin. It allows for unfaithfulness to brew. It promotes multiple partners in a relationship that was meant to be an exclusive, lifelong relationship between husband and wife. We were also reminded how marriage is made holy and sacred by God himself. We read in Malachi chapter 2 how God himself bears witness to the marriage covenant, every marriage covenant made before him, meaning he approves, he, he affirms them, and even seals it with his own spirit. As a result, divorce is an act of sacrilege to what God has made holy. Divorce profanes the sacred union between husband and wife. Then, of course, finally, we we also saw how all marriages, whether Christian or non-Christian marriages, they are all meant to illustrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. God made marriage common grace to all of humanity so that we might all have an illustration, a common illustration of God's salvific work in Jesus Christ. The, 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 the marriage covenant is meant to illustrate the, the, the unbreakable covenant that Christ makes with his bride, the church, a covenant that he will, of course, never break, that he will never abandon. So divorce then pillages that illustration, that picture. Divorce tarnishes God's message of his perfect love that, uh, that, that is supposed to be illustrated in, in the vows of a husband and a wife. So for these reasons, God hates divorce with a passion. Now, the reason why we establish God's hate for divorce in the first sermon is because I want to be perfectly clear this morning as we examine some things. Though the exception for divorce exists in Scripture, that exception is not permission, nor is it a solution to troubled marriages. 
As we'll see, God made the margins, the lines for a legitimate divorce so narrow, so specific, as if to say only on these grounds can you even think or even consider divorce. And even if, even if you meet the requirements, divorce is still not the answer. So as we look at the exception for divorce today, I want to do two things. On one hand, I want to hold us to that truth that God hates divorce, that divorce is wrong, that that it is wicked, it is an abomination to the Lord, and it should not ever be named among us, especially us believers. My desire is to keep that tension there, the reality that God hates divorce. And on the other hand, I want to pick up the truths of God's word regarding this, this very narrow portion of scripture that talks about the exception for divorce, that, that, that it talks about how God allows or permits divorce to even be considered, to be considered. Again, my hope in all of this church, for, for those who are either married or those who are looking to get married or those, you know, just even single, that you would hold marriage to a, such a high degree that divorce would not even be named or even be uttered in our lips or even be taught or even thought of. My hope, again, is that for turbulent marriages, for husbands and wives who are going through a rocky season, that divorce will not even cross your mind, regardless of what situation you are going through. And again, as a church community, my hope is that we would rally together around marriages so that we can maintain that beautiful image of the gospel that those marriages are meant to convey with excellence. So let's get back into our passage. Someone say, jump for me. If you remember from last week, we find Jesus in another trap by the religious elites, the the Pharisees of his day. The Pharisees wanting to discredit and destroy Jesus ask a very simple question to him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They wanted Jesus to either say yes and therefore contradict himself from his previous teachings or they wanted Jesus to say no and then he would then therefore be considered a hardliner, an extremist, someone akin to John the Baptist who just recently got beheaded for his stance on divorce by King Herod, right? So Jesus being Jesus once again outsmarts the Pharisees as we talked about last week. He asked in verse 3, what did Moses command you? And remember what Jesus was doing here. He's not, he's, not, he's not asking, what did the rabbis command you? Or what does the social or the cultural norms of divorce say about, about this situation, of this issue? Jesus was going back to what Moses said in the holy word of God, the Bible. I love that. Now, what the Pharisees reply is important for us to examine because this is where there's a lot of confusion about divorce, where there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, confusion as to what the exception is and what the grounds for divorce is. And as, again, as evidenced by the Pharisees themselves, they were very much wrong in their stance and their belief of, uh, on divorce. So the Pharisees say, reply, they reply in verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. This is their argument. Right? That because Moses allowed for divorce, that means it must be okay, that it was permissible. So the question we need to simply ask, right, when you're studying the text here, is that true? Is that true? Did Moses actually allow for, or even command for divorce to take place? Because remember, the concept of divorce for the Jews in Jesus' day uh, all revolved around the teachings of the rabbis, or rather the, the commentary that the rabbis had on Moses' teaching. So it wasn't directly connected to Moses' words or the, the words of Scripture. 
And as we said last week, one of the prominent leaders or one of the prominent rabbis who, who taught on divorce was a guy named Rabbi Hillel. Remember this guy, right? This was the guy who said, uh, you know, who made divorce easy. He said that if your wife burns your food, you can divorce her. Or if your wife speaks loud enough for your neighbors to hear, guess what? You can divorce her. Any, any wife guilty of that? You don't have to put up your hands. Don't worry. We don't want to get you in trouble here. And, and, and or even and he said this very simply, right? And this is the one that everyone, every guy loved in Jesus' day. If you found someone more attractive than your wife, then you can divorce her. Wow, right? Ladies, I mean, wow, come on. And he wasn't alone in his teachings, by the way. Other rabbis taught the same thing. There was another rabbi who said, a, a bad wife is like having leprosy, divorce her to be cured. Excuse me, right? Or how about this? Get this one. I love this. Here's a quote from another rabbi. Among those who will never behold the face of hell are those who've had a bad wife because she's been the hell for him. I mean, well, that's convenient, right? If salvation was that easy, right? All of that to say, that was the popular or the cultural views of Jesus' day on divorce. And you have to ask, where is this even coming from, right? Where are they extrapolating, extrapolating these teachings from? What did Moses actually say that led them to, or, the, or led these rabbis to, to teach these things? Well, so this morning, let's look at the injunction for divorce, the injunction for divorce. An injunction is a legal term for a, a warning or an order to restrain an individual from doing something. And that's exactly what we see in scripture concerning divorce. So I want you to understand there is only one text in the Old Testament on divorce or, or uh, something that has to do with a command or, or a law concerning divorce. And the Pharisees could only inflate their teachings from this one command that Moses has. And so uh, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. It says in verse 1 to 4, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then, she, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and, and puts, her, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his home, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife... Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. Again, she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. That is, again, the only text in the law of Moses that gives an explicit command regarding divorce. I looked it up, there's nothing else. And where, that rap, where the rabbis get their, their ideas from, or they extrapolate, extrapolate this, this, their ideas is from, is, that, is from verse 1 of that passage. Just that one word right there. When a man takes his wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That one word. That one word is what the rabbis used to conflate Moses' teachings and their teaching. They reasoned that anything can be indecent right? Decency is simply meaning something that's not in, 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 that goes against societal norms, something that goes against cultural norms. So again, the rabbis taught if, if your wife lets down her hair, right, like in a Pantene commercial, again, they, or, or speaks badly about your mother, that's indecent. They should, then therefore, you should divorce her. 
The rabbis, the Pharisees said that those things, even a simple thing as, again, looking not as attractive as another woman, that was indecent and therefore you have the grounds to divorce your wife. But listen, I don't know if you just read it with me, but there's, that's not the command in the text, right? Did you see that? Anyone else see that? Let's read it again. You'll be smarter than a Pharisee, right? Are you smarter than a Pharisee? You know that song, right? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, again, let's do this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her, her a certificate of divorce, do you see a command there? There's no command. There is absolutely no command. It's a specific scenario that Moses gives regarding divorce. He says, when a man, or if a man takes his wife and this happens, that's, that's not a command for divorcing your wife for some small indecency. It's simply a scenario that Moses is giving. Now, there is a command in there that Moses talks about. Let's see if you catch it, right? Let's go down to uh, verse, let's say, start from verse 2. If she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, he took her to be his wife, listen, verse 4, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination to the Lord. Did you catch that? That's the command. The command is that you cannot marry your ex-wife who already married someone else because that would be adultery. That's the command that, that, that Moses is giving in this context, right? That's the command that Moses gave. It wasn't a command to divorce your wife for any slight indecency. Again, that was just a scenario. In fact, what this passage is actually saying is quite the opposite. It's saying that if you divorce your wife on the grounds of indecency, that is not a legitimate reason for divorce. Hence why if she remarries, she's committing adultery. Because in the eyes of God, your marriage with her is still valid. Your marriage with her, the one that you just broke off because she let down her hair, is still valid in the eyes of God. Regardless of how you see it, it's legitimate. It's still legitimate in the eyes of the Lord. See, the point of this command is to warn people about adultery. This command is very specific because it seeks to accomplish two things. It would prevent someone from treating marriage like a, a, like a, like a free trial, right? Remember AOL back in the day, right, in the 90s? You get those CDs, right, and it's like a free trial for 10 days, and then you uninstall it, and you reinstall it afterwards, right? Who did that, right? That's stealing. Uh, but it, nonetheless, it is, it's, it's, this command is meant to, 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 to stop people from considering marriage the same way. As in, oh, I'll marry this individual, and if it doesn't work out, that's okay. I'll just divorce her and find someone else. No. Finding someone else more attractive or, or marrying another, uh, another person because she cooks better or whatever it is, that's adultery. And that's what Moses is getting at. By treating your marriage like a free trial, you are causing your wife to sin and therefore fall into judgment. Because when you divorce her on illegitimate grounds and she marries someone else, she's committing adultery. That's judgment on you. Now, the second reason why Moses writes this, um, this command is to, to make husbands think twice before they divorce their wife. Because if she remarries, if she marries someone else, you can never take her back, lest you commit adultery yourself. The point is, husbands and wives are not to take divorce lightly, because it means that 
you can never be with your spouse again if they remarry. The command is meant to invoke in husbands the weight of divorcing the wife of your youth. The woman that you courted and pursued, the woman you made every effort to impress and, and went through hurdles just to win her trust and affection, the, the woman that you, you bought all those flowers for and all that chocolate for, this, this command is meant to make husbands reconsider divorcing the woman they fell in love with. This is why this command from Moses is really an injunction, a warning, a deterrent against divorce and not a command for it. So now going back to Jesus and the Pharisees, after the Pharisees misquote Moses, Jesus replies, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Again, Jesus is pointing out that the only reason why divorce is even in existence in humanity is because of people's sinful hearts. The word there in the original Greek is, is sclerocardia. Sclerocardia, literally meaning sclerosis of the heart. I love that. The Bible says that in our natural state, because of our sin nature, our hearts are hardened. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And as we mentioned last week, sin is the reason why marriages lead to divorce. It's not because, you know, he leaves the toilet seat up. Or because, you know, she, she doesn't cook well or whatever it is. Sin is the reason for divorce. It's couples being stuck in their pride and or in their selfishness or, or wanting to control or dominate the other. Again, God's original design for marriage was a loving covenantal relationship, a partnership between one man and one woman. In Genesis, the, the reason why God creates Eve in the first place is to create for Adam a helpmate, a partner, someone to rule over creation with Adam. And of course, Adam was meant to lovingly lead his wife to pr protect her and provide for her. But sin changed all that, and sin still changes marriages today. Something that starts off holy and blessed by God becomes defiled and tainted by sin. Something that starts off beautiful and filled with so much joy becomes ugly and filled with grief and resentment and bitterness. That's what sin does. Husbands and wives, the more, you, you, the more sin you allow into your marriage, whether it's lying to one another, whether it's secretly lusting after others or degrading one another with words, understand that your heart becomes calcified towards your spouse. It makes you care less about her. It makes you, you resent her more. It makes you less understanding. It makes, you, your, it makes your words more sharp towards them. And most of all, it makes you less forgiving of your husband's or, or, or your husband's or your wife's uh, shortcomings. I've said this before. Long before couples fall out of love, they run out of forgiveness. Sin makes you numb to the affections of your husband and wife, it hardens your heart towards your spouse and inclines you towards divorce. So Jesus is calling this reality out. He's saying to the Pharisees, the only reason why divorce is even in existence is because of sin. Because sin exists in your hearts. But again, divorce was never part of God's original design for marriage. And as we discussed last week, Jesus goes back to Genesis to reinforce God's original design. He says in verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That is a biblical design for marriage. 
Now, you'd think this would be enough, but not for the disciples, right? They go into a private, we'll read just in a second here, but they go into a private house and they just want to make sure that Jesus means no to divorce, right? It says in verse 10, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus is very clear. The reason why divorce is bad is because it causes people to commit adultery. It breaks the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. So now a good question to ask at this juncture is, is divorce ever permissible? Is divorce ever permissible? Does God ever permit divorce to take place? Again, this is important because uh, some churches, they stop at this verse and say, see, no divorce whatsoever, right? This is, again, why it's a taboo topic because there are churches that preach that, that there is no grounds for divorce whatsoever. I mean, um, again, there's scripture here, but uh, from what we just read, it does sound like that, right? It sounds like there's no wiggle room. So does God ever permit divorce? And the answer is yes. He does in two ways. One where the believer is passive in divorce and the other in which the believer can actively pursue divorce. So let's look at the first act. And in order to understand that, let's, let's look to the illustration for, the, for divorce. The illustration for divorce. There is a biblical design for divorce similar to marriage, a design that is permissible to God. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. The Israelites are about to enter into the promised land and a land flowing with milk and honey, if you know that story, but also a land full of pagans, people who worship other gods. Uh, so God gives them a very specific command in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 to 4. He says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. God says, listen, you're going into a land flowing in milk and honey, right? But there's also going to be people there, pagans. Don't marry them. Don't let your sons marry them. Don't let your daughters marry them because they will turn you away from worshiping me and get you to worship other gods. Very plain, very simple command, right? Instructions from God. Of course, what happens? The Israelites go into the promised land. They see, a people, they, they see some people there and, and some people are like, oh, check out that lady, right? Her hair is like a flock of goats. Or, or, or oh, Look at this guy. Man, check out the hills of Gilead on him. And then, of course, one thing leads to another, and then the Song of Solomon's is written. <laughs> the people of Israel marry the pagans of the land and doing, and doing exactly what God told them not to do. As a result, the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah fall to pagan empires. Now, after years of being held in exile and captivity, uh, they, they realize that this is because they, they married the pagans of the land. And so when they, they're given that opportunity to go back to the land and rebuild Jerusalem, it says in Ezra chapter 10, look at this with me, after the people return to the land, in Ezra chapter 10, verse 2. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, we have broken faith with our God. And have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put 
away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be, be strong and do it. So Ezra the priest conducts a mass divorce over the people. Husbands are leaving their pagan wives. Husbands are leaving their pagan children because they recognize their unfaithfulness to God was rooted in them marrying these pagan uh, people. They recognize that they disobeyed God. Ezra even says in verse 10 of that passage, he says, you have broken faith and married foreign women and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate, that's divorce, yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. It was God's will for the people to divorce their pagan wives. Why is that? Because listen to this, right? Infinitely more atrocious than adultery or divorce to God is idolatry. God hates idolatry more than divorce. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. It's infidelity of the soul. Instead of worshiping and loving God, you worship someone or something else. And God hates that even more. Because you're not simply being unfaithful to another human being. You're being unfaithful to God himself. Unless you think this is just an Old Testament thing, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12 to 13. This is Paul's recommendation to believers who are married to unbelievers. He says in verse 12, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Paul's suggestion here implies that the unbelieving spouse is consenting, meaning approving of their Christian lifestyle. But if they are not, Paul says in verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So if the unbelieving spouse does not consent of the unbeliever, or, or rather the believer's faith, and the unbeliever chooses to leave or divorce the believer, Paul says, let it be so. Divorce is okay. Why? Because Paul also says in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer have or share with an unbeliever? Then in verse 17, he says, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate, divorce from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, that then I will come, or then I will welcome you. Again, the point, again, in all of this is that in infinitely more atrocious to God than divorce is idolatry, infidelity of the soul. See, Paul's concern, as he says later in 1 Corinthians, is do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. The concern is that the believer would be led astray to, to idolatry, to the faith of the unbeliever. And so if a believer is married to an unbeliever, of course, listen, and don't get me wrong, the hope there is that that, that unbeliever would come to faith, that they would repent, that they would come to Christ in, in faith and for salvation. But if that unbelieving spouse does not consent, does not approve of the Christian's faith, and they, and, and listen, and they leave, 
and they request for a divorce, the Bible says, let it be so, let it be so. that's okay, divorce is fine. And listen, is, is that clear? Right? It, it's not, the, 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 the part of divorce is not on the Christian side, right? It's on the unbeliever's side. If they want to have divorce, right, the Bible says, that's okay, let it be so. But the Christian's responsibility is try to win the spouses, try to win the, the, the husband or the wife that is an unbeliever for Christ. And now, if it's not abundantly clear, by the way, from that, for those who are single and who are ready to mingle, the Bible is unequivocally clear on this topic. Listen, kids, do not date or marry an unbeliever. Can I get an amen? Anyone? But I, can't, I can win him for Christ. Yeah, but he can win you for the devil too. Listen, there is no doubt in my mind that God can use relationships to bring someone to faith. But more often than not, I've seen believers getting into relationships with unbelievers and they attend church for a bit. But the next thing you know, they're getting into lifestyles of sin and they're getting into you know, all sorts of things and, and they stop even coming to church. So listen. Unless God specifically calls you to date someone for Jesus so that you can win them for Christ, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. But I love him. Listen, if that's your sentiment already, it's a good sign that you're already on the way to idolatry. Because like in all things, you are to love Christ more. So again, everyone say this with me. Do not date or marry an unbeliever. Amen. Good, you made a vow to the Lord, you're not going to do it. Amen. (laughs) Listen, there's a bunch of single brothers and sisters in the church. Why don't just pick one and marry them? Right? Stop waiting for Mr. Perfect. Listen, Jesus already came. You got to sell it for someone less. You have to lower your bar a bit, right? And I, again, just wanted to be curious because we, we just preached on singleness, right? If God calls you to marriage, then, you know, pursue marriage. But if you're single and, and not ready to mingle, that's okay too. But please, don't go down that road, right? Just get married to a, a healthy believer and, and you'll be good. We need more children in the kids' ministry. Um, let's go back to uh, divorce here. The illustration we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is that God allows for divorce when it comes to idolatry. Because he sees divorce as, again, a lesser evil to idolatry. So there is a passive way in which God permits divorce. Again, to be clear, it's not the believer who initiates that divorce. It's the unbeliever, right? It's the unbeliever who calls for that divorce. Now, let's look at the active way for divorce. So the active way in which the grounds in which a believer can... can Invoke divorce on, limited, on legitimate uh, grounds before God. Let's go to Matthew chapter 19 this time. Matthew chapter 19. This is the parallel passage, the parallel text to our, our passage in Mark 10. Matthew adds a little more to the text than what Mark has. So in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8 to 9, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So now let's talk about the exception for divorce. The exception for divorce. And consequently, we'll also talk about remarriage as well. Christ gives an explicit 
exception for divorce, meaning grounds in which a believer can legitimately call for a divorce that is, that is and of course that is sexual immorality. Jesus also teaches this in, a, in, in, a, in, in his Sermon on the Mount, right? It's not an isolated situation. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The word, therefore, sexual immorality in the original Greek is porneia. That's where we get the word pornography from. It literally means to sell off like a prostitute. It's describing the act of giving your body over to someone who is not your spouse. It's fornication. It's sex outside of the bounds of, of a legitimate marriage. It's adultery. And so when a husband or wife commits sexual immorality, i.e. adultery, the faithful spouse is given the permission to divorce their spouse, and it will be considered a legitimate divorce in the eyes of of God. Divorce because of, divorce because of adultery is the exception that we see in God's word. And we even see an example of this righteous way of divorce in scripture. Remember Joseph, right? When he found out that Mary was pregnant, not knowing that it was the work of the Holy Spirit. It says in Matthew 1 verse 19, and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph was in the right, even called just, for pursuing to divorce his betrothed Mary in a quiet manner. So again, divorce because of adultery is the exception, the only legitimate grounds for a believer to divorce their spouse. Again, not simply because you find someone more attractive or, or your, your, your wife can't cook or, or you, you can't reconcile your differences. Adultery is the only exception and nothing else. But listen, and this is very important, and I want to make this very clear. Again, adultery is the exception, but divorce is not the solution. Adultery is the exception, but divorce is not the solution. And what I mean by this is that for believers, for those who are in Christ, adultery does not have to be the end of a marriage. The exception is not a command to divorce a spouse, even if they commit adultery. If that were the case, church, we'd have a lot more divorcees in the church because Jesus raises the bar, right? He says, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. There'd be a lot more divorcees in our church. So understand, adultery for believers does not have to end a marriage. We believe in a God who can raise the dead to life. How much more can he restore a dead marriage? Uh, how, much can he, how much more can he restore a marriage that has suffered the worst crime against the marriage bed? If you want evidence of this in Scripture, remember the prophet Hosea, right? His wife became a prostitute, and God told him to divorce her. Then shortly after, God told him to take his wife back, and then he restores that marriage. And again, the, the reason for this, by the way, is to illustrate God's relationship with Israel. After Israel had run off to worship other gods and defile themselves with these other gods, God himself says in Isaiah 50 that he divorced Israel, that he gave a certificate of divorce to Israel. But then in Romans 11, Paul speaks as though God has taken Israel back uh, through what Christ had done, and he's even grafted us Gentiles into the family tree 
of Israel. So there is that sense where God even takes back um, the takes back Israel uh, even after this divorce. And all of that to say, God does give adultery as the exception for divorce, but in Christ, that exception is not the solution. And please hear me, right? I'm not talking about a situation where the spouse lacks remorse or goes on sinning or continues to cheat on their spouse without any repentance. No. But if a spouse is caught in adultery and there is godly remorse and repentance, then I wholeheartedly believe that God can restore that marriage. It'll be, it'll be hard. It will take work, a lot of counseling, I'm sure. But we worship a God who, who reconciles the most wretched sinner to himself. So there's no doubt that he can reconcile a husband and a wife together who has gone through infidelity. And I've seen it too. I've served, I've served with believers who, who went through infidelity in their marriage, but they held on, they repented, they fought for each other, they fought for their marriage, and God restored their marriage. Adultery is the exception, but it's not a command for divorce. Let me put it this way, right? Divorce is not the punishment for adultery. Biblically speaking, Death is the punishment for adultery. We read this last week, right? Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to what? Death. The punishment for adultery is death, not divorce. And listen, this is where remarriage comes in, right? Listen to this. On the grounds of a legitimate divorce... Where one spouse commits adultery and the couple decides to separate, right? Listen, some argue that they can't remarry, but, but this is important. The adultery of the spouse does not penalize the spouse who remained faithful. If God's law was enacted, the cheating spouse would be what? He'd be dead, right? Because that's what the law calls for. Adulterers are to be put to death, the death penalty. And if that were the case, and the cheating spouse was put to death for their sin, then by that same law, the faithful spouse would be free to marry again, right? They'd be a widow, they'd be no longer be bound to their spouse, and therefore they could remarry. But listen, just because God chooses to show mercy on the life of the adulterer does not mean that the faithful spouse is still bound to him or her and cannot remarry. Again, God does not penalize the, the faithful spouse for the sin of the unfaithful spouse. So yes, absolutely, there those who have gone through legitimate grounds for divorce, again, explicitly adultery, have legitimate grounds to remarry because God's mercy on the unfaithful is not a burden to the faithful. Is that clear? So in summary, as we, as we close here, I know it's been a long talk on divorce and I'm sure everyone's encouraged. God hates divorce, but it's a reality because man's heart is hardened by sin. And though he gives an exception, a legitimate exception for divorce on the grounds of adultery, divorce is still not the answer. Even though adultery, uh, can, uh, even through adultery, God can heal and God can restore a marriage. He is able, he's capable and it's not just that God can do it, but He is willing and wanting to. 
God loves marriage, and he wants to do whatever it takes to heal and restore those things, to bind up the brokenhearted. God's in the business of reconciliation. Whether it's us to him or it's between husband and wife, God's in the business of reconciliation. Now, for those who are listening to my voice and are listening to a sermon who have gone through a divorce or, con- or, or considering it, or even have committed adultery, understand that there is mercy and grace. The same way that God covers a multitude of sins with the blood of Jesus Christ. The same way that Christ has died on the cross for the world of sins, he's also died for adultery in a marriage. He's also died for those who divorce in an illegitimate matter. And again, for those who are considering divorce, listen, again, divorce is not the solution. Divorce is not the solution, regardless of what the situation might be. It's not the solution. Christ is. Christ is the only one that can deal with your husband's sin or your wife's sin. Christ is the only one that can change a person truly from the inside out and transform them, make them into a new creation so that they stop lashing out, that they stop cheating, so that they stop lying, so that they stop doing whatever it is that is destroying your marriage. Christ is a solution. And our hope for those who have experienced divorce in their life, our hope as believers Listen, that even divorce relationships will be reconciled in heaven. That those who are brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone through divorce, our hope is that in heaven, when we all stand before God, all those hurts, all the wounds that we experience here on this life, in this life through those relationships, will be healed and reconciled in the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we, we just ask that the weight of this word this morning would be upon us. And God, the, your hate and your, your passion towards divorce would be upon our hearts. That we'd be so convicted by you, Holy Spirit, that divorce would not even be named among us, that that we would not even consider or think or act on divorce, Lord God, in our marriages. Lord, that those marriages who are struggling, who are going through a season of, of trials or even sin, that they would be healed in Jesus' name. That, God, you would bind up the wounded. That, God, you would heal the brokenhearted. God, we know that you care. And for the wife who is struggling with their spouse or the husband who is struggling with their spouse, I pray that you would comfort them. And I pray that you would give them hope. And I pray that the enemy would not have any foothold in the marriages of this church.
I pray in Jesus' name that you would guard, oh Lord, every marriage in this church. That God has a community that we would rally around them and protect them and minister and edify them. And that those who are yet to be married, Lord God, who are, who are single or who are in, in a relationship, Lord God, that they would pursue a marriage that reflects the love that you have for your bride, the church. I pray, oh God, that you would hold us to such a high standard, oh God, in the relationships that we have. Knowing, oh Lord, the, the sin in the world, knowing, oh Lord, how the world has corrupted this beautiful imagery of marriage, I pray that we would stand as a light, as a beacon, as a pillar of truth as to what marriages are meant to be. As to what your gospel is. Oh Lord, right now we ask for forgiveness for whatever idols we have created in our lives. Because again, as we talked about this morning, God, infinitely more then you hating divorce, you hate idolatry. And I pray, oh God, that you would be first in our lives this morning once again. That we would not have any idols in our lives. That God, our hearts, our minds, our, with all our strength, we would love you first and keep you first. Regardless if we're single, regardless if we're married, regardless of what season we are in our lives. God, I pray that you would not leave us the same. Change your people for the good of us and for your great glory, Lord God. Lord, bless the marriages of this church. In Jesus, your mighty name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.